Hey, welcome to the Buck and Bernie Show. How are you doing? It's good to be back, I tell you. I mean, time flies, isn't it? It, it does, it That's does. Good. Here it is, June and everything, and everything changes. The weather changes. You know, everything is like so new. I know. And I, you know, I've just been through that long, cold, snowy winter, and now... It's hot. It's like, so you still have some snow over there or no? Oh, on the ground? Well, no, not like anymore. It's no, no, so it's, it's green. It's nice and green now. Say, Lots of grass. Man, you were like cold over there. I mean, I would yeah. call him and say, I got water under the foundations. Yeah. It's like oh, I got a river behind my house. And I'm like, where did the river come from? Right. But yeah, it's from just, you know, a yeah. lot, a lot so of snow. So the mountain's still packing some snow up there. It's looking nice. The desert's all greened up and things are blossoming. Yeah, Lots of wildflowers. Blossom, you know, it's blossoming so much that we have decided to go a little bit south of Moab. We're going to go to the Dugout Ranch, uh, which is uh, close to Monticello. And uh, we have a really cool, wonderful, amazing guest with us today. Yeah. I love the way you, you pronounce Monticello because <laughs> it's a... It's a uh, you know that's not, not the way drink. That the, that's not the way the locals pronounce. It is uh, not a drink. Monticello. Oh, okay. okay Monticello, uh, but I, I understand it. It's okay, a, that's good. That's <laughs> Monticello. Monticello. Uh, oh, that's very Italian. Okay, and I'm French. Oh my God, it's so confusing. But anyway, no, but you're not Matt the only is one. with us. Mad Red is with us, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, the legacy of the ranch and what is mom. And parents have created and and are it is a very important part of our culture here in uh, in this region. But before that, you and I are cooking. Yes, this we're this Friday the youth garden dinner that uh, we will be chefing up for. Yeah, them. it's going to be really so. cool. We have a we have a great uh, uh, great menu and. Uh, all the proceeds are going to the Youth Garden Project, which is really important to us because we want to make sure that we are supporting as much as we can our community. So if uh, you want to make reservation, you can call uh, 435-259-2326, or you can buy uh, your ticket directly at youthgardenproject.org, not .com, .org, or I like this one givebarter.com slash in season celebration so you know if you want to really help the community to be part of the community and have a blast just join us because this will be fun and it is this friday and uh, good food too so oh, awesome food uh, tell them the menu the tell them the menu from the garden from the garden, yep. yeah, it's going to be really cool. Yep. We have a little reception with uh, Garden Vegetable Crudite. Uh, there's going to be tons of dips with that, but you have tours of the garden. You'll be able to get some education at the same time. Uh, we'll most likely, we'll talk mosquitoes as well. And then, <laughs> and yeah, they will be on the menu. No, they're not on the menu, but they're around. <laughs> and then on the menu, you have yeah. seasonal thyme roasted beets and with some goat cheese and... Uh, local herbs i mean everything was from the garden and then for the entrees we have uh, organic chickens uh then with a pesto oil we have some wilted greens all from the garden red quinoa not from the garden but they will be with something in, from the garden in it and we're going to do a heirloom tomato hatch pepper jam and those are from the garden and then uh, from the orchard, we have tart cherries and apricot cobbler or something like that. We're kind of working on it. So it's going to be a lot of fun, you guys. So come on in and join us. Uh, Buck is going to be cooking. Bernie is going to be playing. I mean, something like that. You know, we're going to be cooking together. It's going to be a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I will be. So join us. Yes. This Friday. This Friday. So anyway, let's uh, talk about the show today. Our our oh. guest, as you said, Matt Red yep. from uh, Dugout Ranch. Uh, welcome. Thank okay. you. So uh, let's let's start out with uh, you know just tell us the history of the ranch and uh, how it's evolved over the years. Okay. Um, well, um, so the ranch, um, the history of the ranch has involved, uh, of course, a lot of people. Um, and uh, if, we're, if we're going way back, um, the land that the ranch is on, there, there were um, a lot of indigenous people that um, both moved through there and, and lived there, farmed there. We still... Uh, farm some of the fields that I'm sure uh, the Puebloans farmed. But um, as far as it being a ranch, um, there were several people who um, homesteaded uh, what they called uh, desert claimed at the time. And um, that started in the, in the late 1800s, 1875. And um, there were probably 15 homesteads in Indian Creek, kind of where the ranch headquarters is, uh, which is at the confluence of Indian Creek and North Cottonwood. And uh, up and down North Cottonwood and Indian Creek, there were several homesteads. And they, um, their, their first building that they would often build was uh, was a dugout. So they would dig back into the bank that was kind of in the uh, next close to the creek and um, that would that they would either line it with wood or rock and and then put a roof over it and a build a, a front wall uh, with a door and that was that was a dugout and that was their their kind of first structure where they could um, stay and later on they they built built uh, other buildings um, and a lot of these people uh, were from um, they had their their family lived in Moab and they usually had they had a house in Moab and they would go out and spend you know months at a time out um, in Indian Creek um, uh, working on their fields um, um, handling their cattle and um, they they decided after several years that for them to um, uh, really succeed with their with their cattle that they would they would run their cattle together so they formed what was called the Indian Creek Cattle Company that um, is still exists today my my mother has the um, has the name of that of that um, uh, that title, um, but they ran their cattle together and uh, did really well. And um, in the early 1900s, uh, in the teens, um, they sold out to Al Scorup, um, who um, well, and, and his his operation, which was the Scorup Cattle uh, Somerville Cattle Company. And uh, he was um, 
a rancher that had come over from the Salina area as a kid and um, ran cattle um, across the Colorado River at height uh, to find winter range. Um, and the um, Mormons in Bluff ended up hiring him to uh, catch their 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 wild cattle. They had turned cattle loose out on what's called Elk Ridge out um, west of, of uh, the Abajo Mountains. There's a big plateau out there. And um, in a few years, those cows were wild and they couldn't gather them. And, and uh, uh, <clears throat> most of the other cowboys in the area at that time were uh, Gentile, as the Mormons called them. So they didn't want to hire the Gentiles. Uh, but Al Scorp was was a Mormon boy, so they hired him, and he and his uh, brother would come over and catch these wild cattle. And uh, he he did well and got to got to know the country. And um, by the time he was purchasing, um, buying out the homesteaders in Indian Creek, uh, the the dugout ranch, he had amassed. Uh, quite a quite a few holdings, and um, with with Indian Creek and his other holdings, he was the the largest um, um, permittee of the Forest Service in the continental U.S. and and that Scorp Somerville operation ran from the San Juan River in the south all the way up, really to to Moab. Um, and wow, that's a lot of square miles. <laughs> it, it was yeah, it was a lot of yep. It was a lot of a uh, lot of acreage. They would um, and they would trail their cattle either up to to Thompson or sometimes over um, over to Colorado over by uh, Telluride Saw Pit. Those were the two places they would often if they were selling the cattle and and taking them out and and there were several cattle well every year cattle drives in in both directions um and uh al uh the his partner um um somerville died early and the way the partnership was set up that al assumed all the all the interest and when he um passed away he his daughters um decided to sell the operation or they were interested in selling the operation and um my grandfather charlie red uh who was a a rival of al's um for uh I'm, i'm i'm not sure exactly what reasons he he was um a sheep man, my grandfather, before a cow man, so maybe that had something to do with it, or, or just uh, good, good old-fashioned rivalry. But um, <clears throat> part of the Scorp Somerville operation had uh, roughly eighteen thousand deeded acres um, up on the LaSalle Mountains, and um, my grandfather's place headquarters was in in LaSalle's LaSalle Livestock Company. And, um, but because, um, 
Al Scorp or the Scorp Somerville operation had that big chunk of deeded and a lot of the the Forest Service permits on on the LaSalle's. My grandfather had had to find summer range over in western Colorado, so over by the Lone Cone and and uh, over that way. And he really wanted to um, have a have summer country closer. And so that was the impetus of him uh, wanting to buy uh, the, the score of Somerville operation. And he, um, because of the rivalry, um, the, uh, the um, identity of uh, the purchaser, my grandfather, wasn't, wasn't divulged until after the papers had been signed. Wow. Um, <clears throat> and that was in the early 60s. Um, and once once um, the operation had happened, um, my grandfather to to pay for um, the purchase um, started dividing off um, several of the ranches that made up the score of Somerville operation. So there was the TY, which is down by Lake Powell. There was a Spring Creek operation, which is um, just on the north side of the Abajos and runs up towards Monticello. Um, <clears throat> there were several other, um, there was a Paradox operation. Um, of course, the, the deeded land up in the LaSalle's and, and the dugout. Um, and my father um, went was sent down to the dugout to um, manage it for several years until they could they could find a buyer and after about a year um, my dad was um, smitten shall we say and um, wanted wanted the dugout and that was also near the time that he started uh, dating my mother um, Heidi and um, so together they made uh, the pitch to um, my grandfather and and the the family that that that's what they they wanted to take the take the ranch or and um, instead of having it sold and um, uh, they they convinced eno the, enough of the family and and uh, and my grandfather that that uh, they they got the the note on the dugout and um, so they they ran ran the dugout for many years um, kind of brought it into uh, a little more uh, modern area of ranching with um, different improvements with irrigation and and uh, cattle and grazing management. And um, then, uh, as, as, as happens, um, they, they um, decided they um, were going to have different lives. And um, part of that, part, in part of that process, um, we decided that... Um, the ranch was we were going to have to figure something else out with the ranch um, so uh, we knew we didn't want to develop it um, and didn't want to sell it but um, 
we were fortunate to um, find a find a partner in the Nature Conservancy. This was a little over 25 years ago, mm. and um, the Nature Conservancy purchased the the ranch, and um, we knew that it wouldn't be divided and wouldn't be developed, and um, and would be would be conserved, and we uh, um, all all our family f- um, felt the um, the uniqueness of of that ranch, and our felt very strongly about our responsibility to make sure that um, that that part of the landscape um, uh, retained the the integrity um, of. Of, of that natural beauty. So, so this is this is a working ranch. It is a working ranch. And how big is the ranch? How many how many acres do you have in that ranch? It's um so the deeded acres um are a little over five thousand acres. Mm-hmm. Um and then we run on about three hundred and fifty thousand um federal acres, so BLM Forest Service and there's some some state land. So it's uh, large, large area. Um, and yeah, it's beautiful. So I, I've been there a few times uh, visiting, and uh, we did a couple of events over there. It's, it's really magical. I mean, it's really incredible. What I didn't know is that it was really a working ranch with a lot of cattle. So how many heads of cattle do you have? And you're the one who, who is running it with with a couple of people, I do believe, a couple of cowboys. Or so, can you tell us a bit more about it? That that's right. Um, so, uh, generally, you don't ask how many head somebody's <laughs> somebody's. Oh, never run. mind. That's, but, that's but, a Frenchman. Uh, but, Oops. But, but um, I apologize. Um, how many hoops? It's, a, it's enough. It's enough <laughs> to keep us busy for sure. Um, yeah. So sorry. So we have um, uh, myself, uh, another cowboy. Um, uh, Cody and a and a farmer, Kedrick, um, and my wife and uh, my mom Heidi mm-hmm. are there, and d- depending on the time of year, we'll have other people come in and help mm-hmm. us. Um, and I, I, I manage the the ranch, uh, and and uh, there's also a research center there, um, and my wife and I um, help manage that. Um, and I I go back and forth between um, overseeing any everything um, and sometimes cowboying, sometimes farming, sometimes uh, working with researchers. Um, there, never never a dull moment. So, in the early days when they had the vast amounts of land, that that was, I assume that's because. The cattle were just raised strictly on wild grasses, and that's why you had to have so much land to raise the cattle and move them from mountain to desert and vice versa. And uh, so do you know when they started cultivating and and raising their own grasses in alfalfa? And um, pretty early on, um, they, they, they would... They would irrigate uh, some land, and it was for, I mean, some of it was for um, things like grains, so they would raise raise oats that they would 
uh, often feed feed to their horses. Um, but they would all, I mean, as pretty much as soon as they, as people settled there, they were, um, it may not have been alfalfa, but they were raising, irrigating some land and, and raising mm-hmm. some forage that they would often, often keep to, to feed out in the winter. Um, so the, the, um, in the desert, though, here in southern Utah and around the southwest, um, often there's enough forage, depending on your cattle numbers, that you don't have to feed a lot of hay like you would up in Montana, say. So there may be some, some supplemental hay for cattle at, at sometime in the fall or winter, but for the most part they're out out on the range all through the winter. So, uh, as we know, climate change has has affected, you know, the the grasses and and the amount of grasses, and uh, so, and plus, you know, coming into more of a drought climate, which also makes it more difficult yes. to uh, cultivate in that. Uh, so, is and that determines the amount of cattle you can raise i assume uh, it, it does yeah. and and also does is there uh, have you changed breeds over the years to uh and i i know uh like they use different breeds for higher altitude and lower altitude uh, could you explain a little bit about that the breed of the cattle that uh, have evolved over right. the years on the ranch yeah so um in the past, uh, it was um, mostly mostly Hereford, and that was that was mostly mm-hmm. what was um, what was uh, raised in, what yeah. was raised in this country. And, it, and Herefords are are very adaptable, and and um, they will dependably raise a calf. It it may not be the the best. Um, we moved um, to uh, Red Angus um, not too long after uh, the ranch was purchased by my my grandfather, and um, and Red Angus have done great. There, um, some of the some of the genetics that are there have. They, you know they've been there on the ranch for over 50 years and so those um, those cattle have acclimatized uh, to to that desert environment even though that might not be where the red Angus had, had uh, originated from but like you say as we're all feeling the climate change more more acutely and and how that's playing out with in on the landscape with um, change in vegetation, um, of course it also being drier, um, hotter. Uh, <clears throat> we're looking, we're looking for ways that uh, that we can adapt um, to climate change and maintain the the health of the of the rangeland that we depend on. So. Um, I mentioned earlier that there's a, a research station at the ranch. It's the Canyonlands Research Center uh, that the Nature Conservancy started with um, several 
several uh, partners, collaborators. The, the USGS is a big collaborator with us there. Um, uh, University or um, Utah State University, uh, CU, um, uh, New, uh, Northern Arizona University, um, and 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 with the purpose being of of trying to find solutions of ha- of how to adapt to climate change, whether you're you're managing, you're a, you're a land manager trying to um, <clears throat> manage uh, for restoration work and what 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 do I need to anticipate if I'm going if I'm trying to take care of this landscape as well as uh, kind of the working landscape trying to find solutions for people um, that are in agriculture that depend on on these landscapes and so part of that we we um, did some work are and are doing uh, a project with uh, the Hornada which is a USDA um, research station ranch it's a in southern New Mexico it's a um, it was an old Spanish land grant and they've they use it to to research different cattle breeds as well as how um, how rangelands changing with with climate change and they about 25 years ago they brought up some cattle uh, from the Copper Canyon in northern uh, Mexico, and these cattle were um, cattle that the Spanish had brought over, of course, and they had they had been brought up to the Copper Canyon, oh, 250 years ago or a little more, and had been isolated there, and in being isolated there, um, they so the traits that they had that that are are favorable to what um, what people are looking for now, especially in the Southwest. Um, they they weren't crossbred with with other animals, and and also the terrain and environment of the Copper Canyon um, uh, strengthened those traits. And so the um, the Hornada and USDA were they were interested in. Okay, if we bring these up and let let's let's study them and see if they might be a a useful breed for uh, producers, ranchers in the in the Southwest to use to adapt to climate change. They generally um, they browse more, so they'll eat more woody species brush with which with climate change we're having more seeing more brush move into these landscapes. Um, they'll travel further to water. Uh, they handle heat uh, um, better than some of the European breeds. Um, and then also their their uh, beef is is very lean, and they you can finish them on on rangeland. Um, it appears easier than you can. Um, a European breed, and so the Hornada um, Research Station and New Mexico State University have studied have been studying these. They're called the Raramuri Criollo. Raramuri is um, Taramaran uh, for that uh, a name that they call themselves and and their cattle, which is light on the land, um, and the 
the the researchers there found that you know the these traits are are playing out and um, and it looks looks like this will be a, a a good breed for producers to try and try and adapt to climate change but what they hadn't done they so this this was proving true in the Chihuahuan desert but um, they wanted to see if that proved true say on the Colorado Plateau or yeah out in the <clears throat> northern uh, Great Plains um, or other 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 places around the around the west and so um, about six years ago we took some of these cattle as well as a, a ranch in South Dakota took some another ranch out in California uh, down east of San Diego took some and we um, working with researchers at the Hornada and and at our research center have been documenting how these animals are using the landscape here on the ranch and how that differs um, from the from the red Angus the the kind of conventional European breed that that we have there and uh, they um, so far the information we've gathered data we've gathered they're they're performing as they did on the on the hornada um, and so it's we have another couple of years with this with this project research project but it's it's looking like um, indeed these Robert Murray Criollo will be a breed that um, ranchers could use to adapt to climate change um, and maintain the the health of the rangelands that they depend on. It's really amazing. It's fascinating to me because my uh, uncles were farmers in, in Brittany. And uh, what we have, we had the Charolais, we had the uh, Normand, and, you know, I, I know quite well those cattle. But when you are in a different terrain, and, and with the, uh, the challenges that we have with the... Uh, um, uh, the change of climate, it, you really have to adapt. And I think that's that's what the, the future is. So today we are with uh, Mad Red from uh, the Dugout Ranch in uh, Monticello. Monticello, Monticello, Monticello. <laughs> I, I'm going to get it one of these days. And uh, it is really fascinating because uh, you look at the history, you look at where you are today, uh, and uh, and where the farm is going and the research center and uh, the nature conservancy. I mean, there's so many moving parts. But we're going to talk about uh, some uh, a subject that you and I talked about. I was uh, really fascinated because I don't know much about that culture, which is a cowboy culture, which is moving cattle from uh, the um, summer season to the winter season, which is, you know, the, the grazing. And we also want to know... Uh, uh, about food, about what you, what you cook uh, up there and, and how it is. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are on the Buck and Bernie Show. If you have any question, please call this number, and you should call 435-259-5968. We are with uh, Matt Red, who is running the Duggar Ranch. And uh, Matt, take us on that journey from winter to summer, or summer to winter, and you driving those cattle up there. All right. Well, it's it's a uh, yeah, it's a beautiful cycle. 
Um, so our our winter range, we're down down in the lower country, and we we break our herd up into three different herds in the winter. So we have one one herd that's in Indian Creek, and then another herd in Beef Basin, and then another herd out on Dark Canyon Plateau. And <clears throat> during the winter, we will move move the cattle in in those herds. Um, to different parts of the range and depending on what the forage is like and what the if we're lucky enough to get uh, snow Um, and uh, some of those ranges it's it's desert country it's dry country and the only the only water available on some of that range is uh, comes in the form of snow so if we get a big snowstorm we'll be out and moving those cattle out to those areas and then as the as the snow leaves the cattle work their way back to where there there's um, more dependable water and um, some of those ranges like beef basin we have to we have to ride in there with pack horses during the winter you can't really drive in there so we'll leave and go into the basin takes about a day to get there and and we'll spend um you know three or four days five days moving cattle around checking things um and then going to the next range uh moving cattle and then in the spring uh we the cattle usually are calving in um, february and march and in late march april we'll gather up um, the cattle and and brand the calves, which involves um, branding, of course, um, and then giving some vaccinations. Um, by law, we we have to vaccinate the the calves, and then of course castrating the the bull calves, and um, then around this time of year, uh, usually mid June, early to mid June. We start to drift the cattle um, up towards our our summer country. So the Indian Creek herd will follow generally North Cottonwood Canyon. And um, it takes around a week. Uh, Slowly we we get up to the to the high country. Um, Same with the same with the basin herd. Um, And then once we once we make it up to the to the high country um, we've usually worked out with the Forest Service um, our grazing rotation so depending on where where we're supposed to start we'll move the cattle to that area we call them pastures but they're really um, quite a lot, lot larger than what a what a pasture would be 5,000 6,000 acres mm-hmm. and We'll move them there, make sure they're um, what we what we call settled, so that they're not they're not ranging around, um, and uh, it roughly it's, it depends on what our what the forage is like, what the what kind of precipitation we have, but roughly every three to five weeks we'll move move the herd to another another pasture um, on our on our forest permit and um, until um, October and that's generally when most 
most ranchers, if they have a Forest Service summer permit, uh, those permits usually run from mid-June to mid-October, uh, with some variation. So in by mid-October, we've gathered the herd and moved them down back down um, into lower country to the ranch headquarters. And at that time, we wean the calves uh, that they generally weigh between 550 pounds to 650 pounds. Um, so, and then we've we've generally contracted those calves, which means we've we've sold them beforehand at a agreed price. Um, trucks come take the calves. We um, work the cows. They get a kind of an annual checkup, and uh, we make sure they're pregnant, which uh, that pays the bills. And um, then the cows are divided uh, back into their winter range herds, and we start moving those um, mm -hmm. herds back out um, to those ranges. You know, it's a lot of work. When you, when you listen to, to, to that journey, I mean, it's really, really involved. I mean, that, you know, we, we in this, I mean, especially big cities, we just go to the store, you buy a steak, you, get a, you, you really have to look at what's beyond this. And that's, that's a, it's a great example of what farming is all about and to do it in a way that is really sustainable as well. Now, what do you eat up there? We're going to talk about food. Shall we talk about <laughs> food a little bit now? Well, I mean, we should not, be. We're, I mean, not, we're, we're not going to eat the beef. But no. So no. What's the, wh what do you prepare? So. What is your favorite dish that you do <laughs> over there when you're camping? Hmm. Well, um, there's, there's definitely a, f a fair amount of... Uh, Hamburger uh, and um, and and steaks sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, my my favorite is when we have a, we have a good wet year and um, I can um, there there are some things that that grow that we can eat eat. So lamb's quarter. I don't know if you've it's it's kind of a green a, a weed really. Mm -hmm. But if you are able to harvest it when it's um, when it's young, um, if you blanch it with just some a little hot water and put some butter, and if you have lemon, uh, squeeze that over. And with um, with either um, lamb or beef, it's it's just the best green that. You can have when I was a kid where we would have is the we would harvest the wild baby dandelions and you, you make a little salad with dandelions as well and then we would have you know when the some of the uh, mustard greens will go in up in the flower we clip the flowers and we use this almost as a uh, as a spice and I mean it's, it was it was really pretty cool to do that as well well you mentioned castration earlier do you <laughs> do you partake in yes uh, what the they call rocky mountain oysters rocky mountain calf fries <laughs> yeah um we do there there it's a very it's a very rich food um so um it's 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 best if it i i, I like it if it's cold out um and often early in the spring, it will be cold out, and it's it's very fatty. 
So, um, yeah. if it, but we get into some springs and it's hot, and uh, in those cases, the the dogs are really happy that day. <laughs> it's, yeah. um, it's best to have yeah. hot nuts in the cold, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you were talking about. I mean, I have driven around the area uh, where the ranch is. And the thing that surprised me, um, you don't really see any sheep. Like, you know, I mean, it's because, you know, for me, when I look at the, uh, at the landscape, the landscape um, almost lends itself to, to maybe uh, sheep farming. So is it a, any reason? Is it why is you don't really see it that much? Or maybe I have not seen it. Um, well, in in general, th- there's been a trend in the in the U.S. Uh, that there are fewer sheep, and and part of that, I mean, started back in the so my grandfather made his money in mm-hmm. sheep, and um, but post World War II um, and th- with the mechanization industrialization of of the agriculture and and livestock it was uh, there were there was a i feel like there was a movement away from sheep and cattle were um a breed an animal that could fit into that system and you could you could finish them with um kind of the leftover remnants of of crops Mm -hmm. um and and the whole the whole system just kind of moved to where it, it was it was easier it, cattle fit into that to that system uh easier um and then there are other other things that have made um raising sheep um especially on on rangeland on public land mm-hmm. uh more difficult over the years um you are starting to see some some people um trying to bring that back and and it would um it would be a a great thing to to have that come back because having um different um different grazers um using a landscape um really helps improve that landscape and 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 maintain the vegetation um you know whether it's um with ha- using sheep or um, some people now are using goats for yeah. vegetation control mm-hmm. but um, whenever you end up with just one 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 ungulate one grazer um, a lot of those things that that sheep or goats or or uh, another grazer would would consume don't get consumed and and that that can create a problem kind of like similar to crop rotation yeah you know exactly you, yes exactly. one species takes care of mm-hmm. another and and they just feed off each other and create their own kind of a ecosystem amongst themselves but let's uh as far what about predators uh do you have any problems have you had any problems has that changed over the years um well, I th- it, um, overall, I think it's it's changed some over the years. Um, there's there there still is the the um, state and and uh, federal government still 
do some predator control, but not nearly what uh, was done in the past. Um, we are somewhat fortunate. We don't have a lot of um, a lot of loss to predators. We have coyotes. There's some mountain lion um, and black bear. Generally, bear don't bother cattle. Mountain lion. And sometimes coyotes are are um, the the main predators, but generally, if you have a a healthy landscape, healthy ecosystem uh, with other wildlife, uh, yeah. rabbits, deer, They'll other go things, for easier. Yeah. You'll, right. <laughs> you'll you'll yeah. you you don't get bothered too much. And part of it, with our ranch, which is a little different th- than than other other operations. Um, we feel like it's that's part of uh being part of the landscape is once in a while you're going to you're going to lose an animal to to predators but um we've been fortunate both with um the condition health of of our system and um maybe where we're we're located we 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 don't suffer a lot of a lot of loss. Well, I've heard that the wolf is expanding. Uh, it's in Colorado, and I've heard that it does come through this area on its way to the Grand. Can- Have you that, that, encountered any wolves? I, I uh, so far no, um, and that that will be that will be uh, something to to adjust to uh, how how that plays out. Um, it's hard to hard to say. Um, <laughs> the Criollo cattle do have horns, <laughs> yes, well, that's a good which defense. may, which may, uh, <clears throat> they may end up using a lot more if if uh, if wolves move back in. Uh, well, maybe maybe they'll keep them out, right? <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a bit more, uh, and the audience especially about the research center? What is the research center exactly? What is the purpose, and what is the focus? Because it's really all about. I would say um, looking at the future and how we can really preserve the what we have now and to make it better and but there is a lot a lot of research being done so can you tell us a bit about it yes so the the Canyonlands Research Center um, focus is on um, finding solutions to uh, to uh, for adapting to climate change and um, part of the the Nature Conservancy's kind of core belief is um, that to have sustainable, effective conservation, it it needs to take into account uh, people, not not just nature, mm-hmm. and and um, and and the people that are dependent on nature and on the landscape. So. Um, a big part of the the research at the at the Canyonlands Research Center is focused on the ecology of 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 arid landscapes, and because that's where we are, and so looking at um, okay, how uh, what's happening with the soil crust? Um, how can we, if we're doing restoration work, how can we propagate soil crust, or can we? Um, it's also looking. We look at okay, what's going to happen with vegetation um, 
on the landscape when we have less rain and more heat or or precipitation coming at a different time of year than what what how things have adapted and if that's the case not only what is the landscape and the vegetation makeup going to be but if we're trying to do restoration work are there um, different ecotypes so it would be the same native species but maybe it would be from central Arizona or southern Arizona or southern New Mexico and that that will have if you're reseeding somewhere that ecotype um, is going to do better than you know what what exists there now the, mm. the, the, whether it's a grass or, or shrub so um, and then like I talked about earlier studying so there's there's a ecological a lot of ecological research um, um, based on on how how the landscape's changing and then how are we going to um, maintain the health of that landscape but then there's also the agricultural component and so with the with the criollo cattle um which is a, we have two projects one that i had mentioned earlier mm-hmm. with with uh, hornada nmsu but we also have another project with um utah state um and <clears throat> it's um mostly breed comparison uh, so comparing them to european breeds that are that are widely used in the area um but it's um we're also doing we're also doing work on um what what crops um are going to be more drought tolerant and and water efficient um as everybody's heard um we're we're in a we're in a pickle with the Colorado River and and uh every every drop of water has to count so trying to find crops um that are going to be more efficient and still provide what what farmer and rat and ranchers need but are going to be more efficient with water so that's another another focus that we're looking at now the other elements of the research center are um we have uh some programs that work with indigenous youths to introduce them to um, land management, range management. Um, and uh, we're in our third year. That pro- It's a summer program, and we <clears throat> have several um, uh, students that, are, that apply, and they get a, get a stipend, and they spend eight weeks, uh, part of it at the, at the research center, the mm-hmm. ranch, um, part of it, part of it at uh, Utah State campuses in Blanding and and Moab, um, and um, we also have my wife started a an artist in residence program where we have um, an artist come for well they don't they aren't at the ranch for a full year but over the course of the year they come several times and they work with um, a researcher who's has a research project at the research center, and they do a collaborative um, uh, work that um, the art is inspired by by the research. And actually, we got word um, a few weeks ago that our our first artist in residence um, 
Jorge Rojas is, and he's working with uh, a local Sasha Reed. They're going to have an exhibit in the um, um, Museum of Fine Art, uh, Utah Museum of Fine Art in Salt Lake, as well as in the um, Natural History Museum of Utah in Salt Lake. So wow, that's really that's exciting. Awesome. So wow. um, speaking of, speaking of the science, it's it's amazing, you know, the science that goes into. Mm-hmm. Especially nowadays, you need more and more science into it. And I know uh, Dr. Temple Grandin was in the area recently and paid a visit to the ranch. Uh, tell me what she was doing and and uh, how she was exposed to what you're doing. Um, well, I, I I think she well she was here she was here uh, as part of the. Um, Moab Museum's um, um, month of uh, kind of focusing on on agriculture and the importance of of agriculture in the history of Moab, and um, we were fortunate enough that she had some time and and uh, and she came down to the ranch and we um, we we kind of just shot the shit. Um, we talked about her research and and. Um, things that she's done to to um, help the help the livestock industry. We we talked about um, our work with with the cattle and the criollo, and we some of the researchers were there. Um, the researcher that's working with us from Utah State um, on the criollo um, talked about some of her work. We have some restoration work. Um, on sagebrush with another researcher, and um, uh, Temple Temple gave uh, the <clears throat> these uh, grad students and um, and and undergrads kind of a, a pep talk of uh, publish your work if you want to change anything you don't just write a your your thesis paper because that just sits there you've got to got to publish and talked a lot about her her effort to. Um, uh, change the industry and and to really look out for both the welfare of of ranchers and the welfare of of animals. It was we just had a, a great time and we took a little tour out, looked at the looked at the criollo, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was really 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 special to to um, visit with someone that's had that much great great influence. Yeah, she's pretty special and very knowledgeable and interesting. Um, so the Criollo, let's we, let's go back to that a little bit. On uh, so you've actually tasted it, right? Yep, uh, I had so the the pleasure of uh, cooking it. So mm-hmm. when we cook, when I cook the um, the uh, ribeye, the ribeye is very lean. Even that you have a little bit of that uh, yellowish, I would say, uh, fat color on top and a little bit of the eye. So you have to um, uh, cut it about three inches thick, four inches thick, and then uh, uh, cook it at really high heat, let it rest, and I did that about four or five times, so like this, you keep, you have to really lock the juices inside. So like this is the medium rare, too rare, I would say. And then if you cook it more than that, like for example, if you go to a, to a medium well or well done, forget it. It is going to be very, very dry. But on the other hand, what was really uh, 
uh, astonishing was that you add the filet mignon that I butchered and cut, center cut. It was marbled. It was juicy. It was delicious. It was really, really amazing. Yeah, it's really, it's a, it's, it's a great breed of beef. And you have to really know how to work with it. Right. But it's really, really awesome, yeah. It so was, very, it was it really good. So does it seem to be a, a success so far, do you think? Um, it, it does. The, the hurdle, um, or a, a, a big hurdle, is um, the um, agricultural industrial complex is set up for a certain size of animal, a certain yeah. type of animal. And mm -hmm. so, and the Criollo the, and uh, a lot of heritage breeds uh, don't fit that. So they aren't, they aren't as big an animal. They're a smaller animal. Um, often they're leaner yep. uh, animals. So, so that, so that is a hurdle. There's, there's a lot of interest um, from consumers in knowing the origin of their food, knowing right. the narrative behind their food. And so there's, there's, there's pressure on the industry, and I see that changing, but in the immediate, um, that is a hurdle. So you, you can, a person can right. raise these and sell them, but you are often getting a, a lower price than what, say, an Angus... Angus cow would bring, but yeah. that's that's a matter of marketing, yeah. really. You well, know, is that you just but take it to the big chefs and say, "Hey, yeah, it look is what I can do with this." But it's not only the marketing; it's really <laughs> understanding the flavor profile of the uh, uh, of the beef as well, and how the beef has been really the cattle has been really raised. I mean, it's it's really it's grass fed, and grass fed will be always leaner. This right, of, and people well, no and that's that's it also because I I remember back in the day when I still had the, the the steakhouse and you would run the yeah, I might I might run a grass fed steak and you have the people that know it and love it, but then you have the people that are used to the you know, the sweetness of the corn fed beef mm -hmm. and just they're they're not used to it and they don't understand it and it's to them it's but it's a matter of educating people, really. So if you want more information, go to the Daga Ranch uh, website. I mean, it's, it's on it's the, the uh, Canyon, Canyon Lands Research Center. Exactly. And uh, you have also the uh, Nature Conservancy. And if you want to make a difference, and, and you can donate to the Conservancy, which is really a, a great way to, to continue to, um, to uh, uh, you know, be part of your community. Okay. So uh, thank you so much for the amazing journey because no, I think you. that, um, you yeah. know, like me, for example, I, I do not know the history. And when you go back, you know, 100 years and to see what your family has done, it's really remarkable. And, and we thank you. I think mm -hmm. that we can say that for on behalf of all the Moabites. We thank you for everything that your family is doing. Uh, for future generation and right and, it's and nice today. that you guys have evolved yeah. and are looking towards the future yeah, which is really awesome which is the way to go you know oh, thank you for, for generations to come yeah and you bet speaking of supporting the community mention once again it's oh yeah the youth garden uh, project we're doing a, a little dinner on a friday night so please join us uh if you want to make reservation 435-259-2326 
And uh, you can also buy tickets at youthgardenproject.org or givebutter.com slash in-season celebration. We'll be cooking some really uh, fun uh, dishes using pretty much everything from the garden except the chicken. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, thanks again. Thank you. Matt, All right. Matt uh, thank, you guys. thank you so much. This was great. Thank it, you it was for great being with listening us. listening to, the, to yeah. the subject and... and uh, It'll, it'll be nice to see how things evolve and uh, for the future. So Definitely. And thank, thank you, everyone, for joining the Buck and Bernie show here on KZMU. And uh, look forward to have you listen to us again on the uh, next first Monday of the month. Yeah, and that's going to be in so. July. And we're going to talk barbecue with Dr. Barbecue. So join us. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to really celebrate the season. Keep it on the Barbie. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful day. Chef's Adventures with Buck and Bernie airs on the first Monday of every month at 4 p.m. Head to kzmu.org for archives and recipes.